I had the great privilege of growing up with a grandfather who could perfectly describe others. He could sum them up in just a few words or phrases. But I remember he had a, a neighbor who lived a couple of farms over that he always had the exact same thing to say about him after we would encounter him. We would go over to buy a horse or borrow something or return something, and as we would get into my granddad's old, beaten-up Fred Sanford truck, as we would drive away, he would say, he's a lazy, good-for-nothing, no-count, pompous horse thief. And my brother and I said, man, that is like the best description in one sentence. You got the point quickly. You didn't want to be around this person. They had no redeeming value. You were not to trust them. Well, this morning, what I want us to see is God's description of you. But not really God's description of you, God's description of us. I hope you have your Bible open to 1 Peter 2. We are carefully, closely, verse by verse, context by context, examining the book of 1 Peter. And I want to remind you, if you look at 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8, Peter has just spoken of those who are sovereignly reprobated by God who he's rejected, who he's passed by. He says in 1 Peter 2, verse 7 and 8, To those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, speaking of the reprobate, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Now notice carefully how verse 8 ends. Verse 8 ends with, God choosing to pass by some. Peter then begins our context in verse 10, and he draws the sharpest of contrast between the reprobate unbeliever and the elect believer. Notice how he sets these two apart. Look at how verse 9 begins. But you, he's writing to the church, to the elect scattered all over Asia. You are not those people described in verse 7 and 8, but you. Now, Peter then is going to give in verse 11 and 12, and I hope you're carefully watching what Peter does. He's going to give you six brief descriptions of God's people. These descriptions speak of the standing, the function, and the privileges of new covenant believers. Now, the amazing thing is, is they describe God's people everywhere. They are universally applicable. It's our delight this morning to have our missionaries to Kenya, Jay and Sumter Brantley, with us. If you don't know who they are, just look for two very cute little red-headed boys. They would be the parents of, of those two boys. We're delighted they gave their presentation on Wednesday night. We pray for them frequently in our prayer meeting. It's a delight to have them with us. They serve in probably the most remote location of any missionaries we support. They're in the bush in Kenya. They are ministering to the Samburu people who don't even have the whole Bible yet in their language. They have the New Testament that Jay and Sumter have provided MP3 players, so the people there being an oral culture, not a written culture yet, so they carry around these MP3s with the New Testament on it. But I could go this morning to Kenya and I could preach this exact same sermon to them because they have a congregation of believers there. Now let me explain what these six things are. Look carefully at verse 11 or verse 9 and 10. First of all, you'll notice that these six things are all corporate. 
They're a list of collective nouns, but in the singular. Let me say that again if it's been a while since you studied your grammar. All six of these things are are corporate. They're a list of collective nouns, but all in the singular. Now, let me say just a word about this whole issue of collectivism. As American evangelicals, we have several pronounced weaknesses. The first is we have a, a deadly predilection for civil religion a confusion of our political commitments with our ecclesiastical. So it's extremely common for Americans to think of themselves as a Christian because they hold to a certain view of economics or law or party politics, or to be more concerned with the civil realm than they should be and have misplaced loyalties. That's one of our weaknesses. A second weakness we have is we have a profound anti-intellectualism. The evangelical historian Mark Knoll 30 years ago examined and critiqued this so well in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And his point was that the scandal of the evangelical mind is there is no evangelical mind. Many who hold the name of Christian never read or study anything, and I'm not exaggerating, anything not even their Bible. They can't defend the faith intellectually, even though we will come to the Apostle Peter commanding them to do so. But the third weakness that we have as a church in America is a hyper-individualism. The thought that I can live the Christian life in isolation from other Christians and without any accountability to a local congregation. Our text this morning is a strong corrective to such individualism. Because it makes six statements about believers, and all of them are corporate. Now, Peter has already introduced this corporatism in in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, by stating that living stones, you and I describes us as living stones, are placed together on top of the cornerstone, who is the living Christ. But then there's a second thing you need to know about all of these statements, all six of them. Not only are all of them corporate, but all of them are drawn from the Old Testament, from Peter's Bible. The only Bible Peter would have had is the Old Testament. Peter is steeped in the Old Testament. It was taught to him by the Lord Jesus. And what he does here is going to be astounding. I'm going to try to carefully point it out. Each of these six statements that can be said of this congregation, a congregation in the northern region of Kenya, This congregation has these statements applied to them that were first applied to Old Testament believers. And now they're pulled over into the New Covenant, and you'll have them all applied to New Testament believers. And what Peter is doing here, and it's very subtle, I'll try to point it out. Peter is stressing the continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he's showing that all of those privileges of the Old Testament believer have now been transferred to the new covenant believer even better. And so you're going to need to think hard with me. You're going to need to study your copy of God's word as we dig in deep. Let's seek the help of the Holy Spirit now. O sovereign Lord, you have given this text, these verses, by divine inspiration. And you have promised us that this text will be profitable to us. It will profit us for doctrine. You have said so. It will profit us for reproof, you have promised. It will profit us for correction and for instruction in righteousness, that we might be complete, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
And so we ask that you would take this word now and you would press it home to our minds and hearts. Give us sharp concentration and focus. Keep us from all distractions. Deepen our trust in Christ. Strengthen our love to him and strengthen our love to his beloved church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now remember, I told you that what the Lord is going to do here is he's going to describe you, more correctly, us, in six phrases, six very descriptive, memorable phrases. Look at them with me in verse 9 and 10. The first thing that Peter wants to state about us as God's people is that we are elect. We are called a chosen generation. And by using this term, chosen generation, Peter is quoting several very familiar Old Testament texts. At least they were familiar to an Old Covenant believer. For example, in Isaiah 43, probably what's on Peter's mind, when Peter is quoting here the text from Isaiah 43 where God says, this is my chosen people, the people I have formed for myself. Now by calling us the chosen people, we have to do it again. Peter has already talked about, oh, back in chapter 1, verse 2, the doctrine of election. And now he brings it up again. I know this troubles some of you, but it causes no trouble whatsoever to Peter. It's a cause of great rejoicing. And it should be to the whole church. Election, of course, is that eternal act of God where he, in his sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in the creature, chose a certain number of people to be the recipients of eternal salvation. The Bible doctrine of election is simple. God didn't draw straws. He didn't look down the quarter of time to see who would choose him before he decided. Rather, by his sovereign will, he chose who would be in the body of Christ. And he acted totally independent of any outside influence. He made his choice totally apart from human will and purely on the basis of his sovereignty. If you don't like Peter's doctrine, then you won't like Paul's doctrine and John's doctrine because they all say the same thing. As I said, we, we had to address this way back in 1 Peter 1-2 when Peter describes the church as elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now he brings it up again here in verse 9. But Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1-4. He, that is the Father, chose us before the foundation of the world. John, recording the words of Jesus in John 15, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, the doctrine of God's sovereign election is always, no matter how much you try to couch it, no matter how many disclaimers you put around it, it is always going to offend some. There's a simple reason. Election puts the spotlight on God's greatness, and it makes man small. Election puts creatures in their place. It accentuates the creator-creature distinction, and creatures don't like that. You see, God is so concerned that men get none of the glory. And he so hates boasting that he's designed the salvation of men so they can absolutely take no credit. And that begins with his choice of his elect. This doctrine of election is supposed to humble men. God has so ordered his saving work so that no man, not one, 
will have anything to boast about. Election is particular and definite. God has chosen a certain number of people to whom he'll give eternal life. He knows them all by name. The number can neither be increased or diminished. Their names are are written down in the book of life from all eternity, we're told in Luke and Philippians. And other names are said to not be written there in Revelation 1. Though the elect are known to nobody else, God knows them all. God was thinking of you, and this is what election means. And I want you to stop and just take this in for a moment. Let this concept give you great delight this morning. God has been thinking about you since before the foundation of the world. And his thoughts of you were loving, benevolent, determining that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places should be yours in Christ. Because your election was settled before history, it's not possible for anything in time or history to unsettle it. And this is meant to supply God's people with unshakable confidence, which is the precise way that Paul brings it up again when he says in Romans 8, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Now, of course, I'm going to answer your big objection. There's some who really just don't like this doctrine. Something that I could never understand because I think, who could be opposed to the idea that God set his affection on me before the foundation of the world? But this is always the objection that's brought up. This is unfair. I don't like the fact that God makes choices. In every age, there have been those who argued that God is unjust. They say it's not fair that God should single out certain ones for eternal life and pass by others. But such a charge evidences gross ignorance, and it perverts the fundamental principles of the gospel. Salvation is not a question of justice or fairness, but of grace. If the matter is to be settled on the basis of justice, then every child of Adam must perish, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To say that God has no right To single out only certain ones to be conformed to the image of his son is to repudiate the cardinal fact of the gospel. Salvation is not a wage that we earn. It's a free gift bestowed upon the undeserving. But the moment that we grant that salvation is God's free gift, we're logically compelled to accept the principle of election. Doesn't God have a perfect right to dispense his gifts as he pleases? Certainly he does. And this is not only his prerogative, he exercises it. God is indebted to no one. He's not under obligation to save any. If he delivers anyone from wrath, it's due solely to his grace. The wonder of election is not that God chooses some and not others. Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. The wonder is, is that God chooses any. But the first thing, notice what what Peter puts in first position of these six traits. Look carefully at verse 9 and 10. The first trait that Peter wants to state about the church collective is, you are a chosen generation. You may not like the title. You may resist it, but God says, I'm going to call you this, whether you like it or not. I've told this story frequently. My same grandfather who I just described a moment ago, the most profoundly delightful Christian man, most influential man. I think he had an eighth grade education that I've ever known was this grandfather. And 
had a friend, Bobby Moore, who lived down the street, and we were eight years old, and I took Bobby into the house one day. My grandfather was sitting in his favorite chair. He had a Folgers coffee can next to him because that's where he spit his tobacco juice. And my mom would always say, Dad, don't miss the can. And he usually did a few times. But I took my friend Bobby in to see him. And I said, Granddad, this is my friend Bobby. I want you to meet him. He said, hey there, Junebug. And Bobby said, excuse me, my name is Bobby. And my granddad said, no, your name is Junebug from here to four. And Bobby pooched out his lip and he said, I don't like that. I want to be called Bobby. And my granddad said, now see what you've done. Now I have to call you Junebug. Because if you're that difficult to get along with and that sensitive, I need to help you. So from here on, I will call you Junebug. So as we walked out of the door of the house, Bobby Moore said, I don't think I like your granddad very much. Well, you may not like it, that God calls you elect, that he calls you chosen, but he's not going to stop calling you chosen because that is his delightful name for you, for us collectively, a chosen generation. Look at the second title. He then moves to calling us a royal priesthood. This term, of course, is, is very clear where Peter takes it from. He takes it from Exodus 19.6, just before the giving of the law, where the Lord says to Moses, Say to the house of Jacob and the children of Israel, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And so Peter is, is drawing on that term that described Israel as they had already been saved, delivered from wrath and bondage in Egypt, and now they were standing before God at Mount Sinai to receive his covenant law. It's interesting how not just Peter, but John does it. He takes that same title, kingdom of priests, and he pulls it into the new covenant to say, that wasn't just them, this is us. Listen to what John says in Revelation 1. He says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, he has made us kings and priests. He says that again in Revelation 5, you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you've made us kings and priests. And so whether you're an old covenant believer or now a new covenant believer, same applies. Royal, speaking of kings, priesthood. And what Peter is saying is he's saying, remember Melchizedek, that that oh so mysterious creature who, who we meet in Genesis and then he's explained to us in Hebrews 7. You're like Melchizedek, who was the most unusual of all men because he combined the office of king with that of priest. So why does God call you collectively a royal priesthood? Well, first of all, you're royal in that you're a king. Every believer has rule. They rule over, first of all, their own hearts. They're no longer slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sin does not reign over them. They reign over the flesh, first and foremost. They're kings because they will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus says in Matthew 19. They are kings because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, they will sit on thrones even judging the angels. As kings, we'll see it from 1 Peter Chapter 5, momentarily, as kings, they shall receive a crown of glory. This is how God views you. Royalty. But then notice what he adds to it. He jams it together with a royal 
priesthood. Before the coming of the Messiah, the the priestly functions were strictly limited to members of the tribe of Levi. Only the priests from this one tribe had been washed, symbolizing cleansing. But you all have been washed. Listen to how Paul describes you in Titus 3. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The priests in the Old Covenant were the only people who were intimately acquainted with God. But now in the New Covenant, you as a royal priesthood, you are those who can come into the most holy place, not once a year like the old high priest could, but daily. Now New Covenant priests, that's you and I, can intercede for others. And here's the amazing thing. I want you to stare at those words in our text in verse 9. When Peter says, you're a royal priesthood, no doubt this was a stumbling block. It was scandalous to Jews. Because what Peter is saying is, you Gentile believers are royal priests. Just before, just a few years before in the Old Covenant, uncircumcised Gentiles were prohibited by law from entering the temple. They couldn't come with the people of God into the courts of the Lord. They were kept outside upon the pain of death. But now you're called a royal priesthood. This is us, not only a chosen generation, but a royal priesthood. The third descriptive term used of us, a holy nation. Once again, Peter picks up on Old Testament phrases and themes. When the Lord met with Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, they had already been saved, taken out of bondage. And now the Lord was going to dictate the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments, which state how a redeemed people were to live in gratitude for their deliverance. And so the Lord told them this, standing, gathered millions strong at the foot of Mount Sinai. He tells them, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now watch what Peter is doing. We're to the third descriptive term now. Peter is taking each one of these terms that every Israelite would recognize and say, yes, that describes us, yes, that, that. Peter is taking each one and pulling them into the new covenant and saying, my Gentile friend, these apply to you as well, except better. The term here that's translated holy is the, the word hagios, meaning different, set apart, dedicated to the Lord's service. Now, isn't it interesting that when Peter wants to to talk about what sort of nation we are, he doesn't say, you're a brilliant nation, you're the smartest people on earth. He doesn't say, you're a beautiful nation, a stylish nation, you're a technologically advanced nation. There's only one term that's appropriate, a holy nation. This holy nation has a king. Jesus, the Holy One who's enthroned and rules over all his citizens. He states that all authority has been given unto him. This holy nation has a law, an abiding law, the ten words. This holy nation has citizenship. Don't misunderstand. Its citizens aren't marked by ethnic traits or a certain language. They come from every tribe and nation and tongue. Rather, the citizens of this holy nation have all been taken out of the domain of darkness, as we'll see in just a moment, and brought into the kingdom of light. 
all the citizens of this holy nation have been clothed in the spotless righteousness of Jesus. And all the citizens of this nation are deeply loyal to their nation. This is one of the things, by the way, let me speak to you as Americans for just a moment. This is one of the things that believers around the world, especially in third world countries, as I've been there, and they'll all scratch their head and they'll ask, they'll say, what is the deal with this hyper loyalty to your country? Don't you realize that our primary loyalty, countries come and go. Ours is going. Don't you realize as American Christians that our primary loyalty is to our nation? What Paul will write and say, our citizenship is in heaven. Our loyalty is to this nation. Look at it carefully. It's the holy nation, the church of Jesus Christ. Holiness, by the way, in case you don't remember, is a major theme of this letter. Think of how frequently Peter brings this up. In 1 Peter 1, verse 2, he talks about the whole purpose for writing is for sanctification of the Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, he repeats the Lord's command to be holy as I am holy. And now he speaks of us as a holy nation, and he'll keep doing this chapter by chapter. He's going to put the emphasis for us on our holiness. This is us, a holy nation. A fourth trait. Keep looking at our text in verse 9. Our fourth trait is, Peter says, you are his own special people. You once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Once again, Peter is quoting very familiar Old Testament text. In Exodus 19, as Israel stood at the foot of the mountain in Mount Sinai, the Lord said to them, you shall be my special treasure to me above all people. But then something drastic happened over the next several hundred years. Even though the Lord had stated that Israel was to be his special treasure. Finally, after sending prophet after prophet, after sending warning after warning, after taking Israel into captivity and chastening them, finally, finally, in Hosea chapter 1, because of Israel's radical disobedience, the Lord said to the prophet Hosea, after he and his wife Gomer had a son, the Lord said to Hosea, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are no longer my people. I will not be your God. Then again in Hosea chapter 2, the passage that Pastor Dodds read in your hearing a moment ago, the Lord once again tells the prophet Hosea, I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, speaking of Gentiles, you are now my people. When the Lord speaks to Isaiah as a prophet, in Isaiah 44, after describing Israel's idolatry, he says, Israel does not know or understand. For the Lord has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they can't understand. Remember what Paul says in Romans 11. He's speaking of Israel and how they have been now moved to the side. When Paul writes in Romans 11, he says, Israel did not obtain what it sought, but the elect have obtained it, 
The rest were blinded, just as it is written, God has given them over to a spirit of stupor. In fact, judicial hardening has largely been the lot of Israel ever since. And this is, Paul tells us in Romans 11, intended to provoke them to jealousy. And their rejection of Jesus comes as no surprise to God, but was ordained and prophesied. Well, if Israel was largely disowned, largely, as the people of God, the Gentiles, shocker of all shockers, Gentiles were called to be the people of God. The Lord said in Deuteronomy 32 that he would provoke Israel to jealousy by those who are not a people, meaning the Gentiles, who had previously not been recognized by God as anything. The prophet Isaiah foresaw this day when Gentiles who, who had been enemies would be blessed with status. He says in Isaiah 19, Blessed is Egypt, my people. Blessed is Assyria, the works of my hands. Blessed is also Israel. Jesus predicted this in a parable that he concluded. Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, Jesus concludes, the kingdom of God is being taken from you and given to a nation who will bear the fruits of it. So now, for you and I, most of us who are Gentiles, that we now, that we should have those titles that had previously been applied to Israel, God's special people, when we were formerly Nobody's, less than nobody's, is cause for incredible rejoicing. That's why Paul, incredulity dripping from his tongue when he writes to Titus in Titus 2, he says, He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify us for himself and call us his own special people. So when you see this fourth title describing you and I, God's own special people, once who were not a people, but now are the people of God. You need to recognize that we have largely been moved into that role that old covenant Israel had. But I want you to notice something, and that's that word special. His own special people. In other words, Peter is saying, you have significance. Everyone is looking to be somebody. The place you find it is by being in Christ where you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. This is us, God's special people. A fifth title that Peter uses. Notice carefully, we are called, in addition to all these other descriptive titles, a people called out of darkness into his marvelous light. A people called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Peter, once again, rooted in the Old Testament, he's thinking of Old Testament texts like Isaiah 42, where Israel is spoken as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Peter's fellow apostle Paul will use the exact same motif in Colossians 1. God has delivered us from the power of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. Now, I want you to think about this phrase that's used here. Look carefully at the text. When Peter says, you are a people who were called out of darkness. Darkness, all through scripture, is used as a figure of speech. Darkness, first of all, is a picture of ignorance. 
All unregenerate men are ignorant, especially since they, they, their full-time vocation is willfully suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They may be brilliant engineers or surgeons or attorneys, but if they've not embraced Christ by faith, they are walking in darkness. But darkness not only is a picture of mental ignorance, it's a picture of moral wickedness and immorality. That's why the writer of Proverbs says, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They don't know what makes them stumble. Sadly, unregenerate men love darkness. They love immorality and they love spiritual ignorance. To disobey God is to walk in the darkness. John will say it this way in 1 John 1. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. Light, on the other hand, look at what it said of us. We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Light, on the other hand, is always a picture of truth and holiness. We're told of the new Jerusalem that it will have no sun or moon because the glory of God will illumine it and the Lamb will be its light and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. Now look at the word that Peter uses as the adjective. Look carefully. Not only have we been called out of darkness, not only have we been called into God's light, but it's his marvelous light. This light is marvelous because the lost man has been in such thick darkness, such overpowering ignorance and immorality. But once God shines his light of grace into a man's mind and heart, that man understands his sin and the remedy, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he embraces him. This is us. A people called out of darkness to walk in marvelous light. The sixth trait, descriptive of you and I, descriptive of every congregation of God's people in the new covenant, is you and I are a people who had not obtained mercy at one time, but now have obtained mercy. Let me remind you what mercy is. Mercy is God's full-orbed goodness shown to those in misery. Grace and mercy can be distinguished. While grace looks down on sin as a whole, mercy looks down especially upon the miserable consequences of sin. Mercy really means a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. Mercy is pity plus action. The perfect example of mercy and being merciful is the sending by God of his only begotten son into the world. Why? Because there's mercy with our God. He saw our pitiful state. He saw our suffering, and in spite of our law-breaking, this was the thing that moved him to action. His pity. So God the Son came, and in mercy dealt with our condition. Paul writes about God's mercy this way in Ephesians 2. God is rich in mercy. To be rich in mercy means that God's overflowing with it. He has an abundant surplus of it, an inexhaustible storehouse of mercy ready to be shown. We've already heard this from Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse 3. echoes this when Peter writes that the Father has given us the new birth according to his abundant mercy. Now let me remind you, God owes no one mercy. And the bestowal of mercy is purely voluntary on God's part. 
And he says this repeatedly. He says it in Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. But what every believer has in common is this. What all of us have in common is this. We've all been recipients of God's mercy. We've now obtained it. This is us, a people who are recipients of lavish divine mercy. How do we apply this text? It's right there in the text. I want you to notice verse 9. Set right there among the nine or the six descriptive terms of the new covenant believer, Peter tells us what our calling is. It's shoehorned in there very tightly. He tells us in verse 9 that our task is to proclaim the praises of him. To proclaim the praises of him. Once we've heard all of these mighty things that are, who, who, that are descriptive of us. And by the way, even there, Peter is quoting Isaiah 43. This people I form for myself, they shall declare my praise. Now notice what believers are not to proclaim. Their self-worth. Their accomplishments. Their problems. Look carefully at verse 9. What are you to do with these six traits? You're to proclaim the praises of him. The praises of him means verbalizing, probably in song, the excellence of God's character and the glories of his deeds. This is the great task of corporate worship. Every time we come together corporately, it's, it's right that I point out to you, this is a corporate statement, these six statements. And now we are given a corporate application. We are to corporately, look at verse 9, proclaim the praises of him. Praise is the overflow of enjoyment and appreciation. People praise their wife or their child, their team, or their favorite book or movie or restaurant. How can you, how can you then refrain from declaring the praises of the one who chose you, came to you in darkness, and brought you into his marvelous light? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, we are astounded once again at the depths of your kindness to us, that you would call us by such exalted titles, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your own special people. And you have even told us now how to respond to such grace by proclaiming your praises. So help us now to do so with zeal and joy, we pray in the name of Jesus.